There, there we go. We're live. John, well, I'm uh, so we're coming live to you from Webster, Wisconsin, uh, back at the cabin. Uh, you might remember we interviewed Gundy last time from here. Uh, sitting down with John Klosky Sr. and John Klosky would be Jr. proper? Sure, that works. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> kind of unofficial, but yeah. Yeah. Senior, can I have you introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, my name is John Kosky. I'm the older, older John Kosky, and uh, yeah, I'm right now. I'm seventy four years old and uh, lived most of my life in Iron Iron or Cherry, Minnesota. Spent some time living in Duluth, and uh, was married at one time. And uh, other than that, I my other life, I drove truck for about 38 years and for various companies. And uh, right now, I'm happily retired. <laughs> I'll trade you in a heartbeat. <laughs> John, I ask you to be here down today because we're talking to your dad. Uh, and, of course, we're at the cabin. My co-host, unfortunately, can't be here with us this weekend. But... Please introduce yourself to the folks at home. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm John Kosky, um, uh, and uh, he's my dad. And uh, I, being familiar and friends with you, I know about uh, the podcast. And in my life, growing up, um, my dad's stories about his um, service in Vietnam, they've they it's not when, but if they're going to come up and. I, I really believe that talking about it is a good thing. And so when I heard about this, that's why it kind of rang a bell in my head. But yeah, we, we started talking about it. What? And I want to say I'm one of the one of the members of my family. I have not served, but I'm a child of a service member. Yeah. So yeah, on the on as I talked about on the show before, you know, my my grandparents served and never had the opportunity. And so John, thank you for agreeing to do this with me no, appreciate that's... it and you're actually the first veteran from vietnam to be willing to come down and do this so i'll apologize now if i screwed up pretty bad <laughs> but so you're you're my guinea pig trial run for this no, one that, and that's okay i just want to you know start at the beginning you know where did you mentioned you grew up in minnesota where did you grow up and what was life like for you back then oh okay uh I grew up in actually what they called Cherry, Minnesota, right between Hibbing and Virginia. And uh, it was basically a growing up was a, it was a good life. It wasn't, uh, we weren't wealthy or were we ever going to be, but uh, my dad worked hard at everything he did. He was a construction worker and uh, my mom was, never say she'd never worked but no she didn't work out of the home and uh no life was basically good then uh things were a little bit lean in the winter when the construction is uh isn't going mm -hmm. but then uh then in the spring it usually would pick back up again and uh i had a I've got a sister who's two years younger than myself and a brother that's seven years younger than I am. And uh, 
it was basically uh, the usual kind of uneventful <laughs> life. You know, you did what you did, and mm -hmm. that that's about it. There's nothing all that exciting about it, but it was <laughs> a good life. Just, just for my own timetable, when were you born? 1946. 1946. So, okay, so your parents were obviously grew up through world war ii yeah and, i suppose, and I I suppose was, they they experienced the great depression and yeah did that did you notice did that affect the way they operated day to day and how they raised you going through something like that oh most definitely i mean it in one in one respect people who grew up and i didn't grow up in the depression but my parents did and they saved everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care if it was used lumber or used nails or whatever. They they used it because you just might come up on a day when you didn't have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I I think our I think our parents. To be very honest, I think our parents became better people by living through the mm -hmm. Depression. What's the old adage? Uh, hard times create strong men. Easy times create weak men. And uh, you know that's of course the you know the gener the greatest generation. Of course, everybody you know there's articles about that and such. But for you, and also um, yeah, to this day there are containers of nails and um repurposed <laughs> items still like three generations on down yeah. i mean that's how deeply deeply ingrained that value was but also uh my dad's dad uh walter well he had, he had also he'd been in the army right he served yeah. in world mm -hmm. war ii he was a combat engineer sure they built bridges and whatever uh all across Austria and Germany and France and stuff like that. that was his job. And so for you, we'll just wait a second here. We got a jukebox playing in the background. I want to over empower the audio. But uh, there we go. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no worries. So for you, I mean, what was like life for you going to school? Uh, was so the story the thing that my parents ingrained in me was that you graduate high school you go to college you get your four degree you go find your nine to five job was it like that for you growing up i mean was there a huge emphasis on the schooling or was it more um, work hard and you know get it work around the house or whatever the case may be okay uh and i had to be the ability to a far, be a far better student than I was. But to be honest, it was like, uh, if you do this, you can uh, make a living at it. I believe with that generation of, of our parents, the big thing was having money or not money but having a way of uh making a living that's whether it be working road construction or 
whatever people did. That uh, making a living and getting by was, it seemed like an education was more of an afterthought mm -hmm. than making a living was. It, it, my parents, they'd always say, you know, you know, do better in school, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, and I'll use John and his wife as an example. They really strive to have their girls, uh, you know, read and read and read their certain amount of time during the day, and they're very much into school. You know, my parents weren't that way. Not that they didn't think that, well, if you study hard, you'll, you'll do fine, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, it wasn't really stressed as much as uh, it was kind of like, well, if you study, you can go and get a get a job of a better job of some sort. Mm -hmm. So, how are you as a student? I mean, if you do, you think if you sat down with one of your teachers, they, they would they have good things to say about you? And I we have uh, we have an annual get together. Uh, that we don't call it a class reunion, but we do. I graduated in a class of 30, 30 students from <laughs> Cherry High School. I, I think that was one of my class periods. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've discussed this uh, many times that we go there and occasionally we'll have a past teacher uh, now the last one we had passed away, unfortunately. He was in his 80s. But they'd come and, you know, we'd discuss things like, you know, how it was when we were in school. And, like, uh, you so often often hear that the students or the teachers and the school board and all this stuff, they're bad and goofed up. <laughs> Like, I've told these, a couple of the teachers, I said, I think you did a good job. I can't hold you responsible for having some bad students. <laughs> I mean, if you have bad students, what's the, uh, uh, what other alternative do the teachers have but right. to pass you on and uh, it, I guess, to be very honest with you, when I was in school, I had so many more interests than what was coming out of that teacher's book. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, I, I would, in all honesty, I'll say I was a very poor student. And I, I tend to sympathize with the teachers because my mom was a teacher for mm -hmm. 42 years. My dad was a teacher for many years. And knowing how they raised me versus how I've seen other kids grow up where their kid's infallible and, you know, they're the greatest student ever. So obviously it's administration and it's the teacher's fault that their student is doing poorly. And I, I think in 15, 20 years, we're going to see that affect the workplace, but that's neither here nor there. But what, what, so what did your well? Did you play any sports or anything like I, that in school? You said you had other interests. Sport interest? I played was baseball, and I was okay at it. Not good, not great, but I enjoyed. I uh, always enjoyed baseball. Mm -hmm. so.
And how, what do your parents do for a living? What did they do for a living? Yeah, well, you said yeah. your mom was around the house. You know, she was, she was a homemaker, and uh, and then actually we did have some cattle, and mom did a lot of the work, uh, milking and stuff like this. And uh, so she worked worked very hard, and uh, my dad, like during the summer months, he was gone a lot, so he'd uh, it was kind of on mom to. Keep things rolling. Mm-hmm. What What was your dad doing? Pardon? What was your dad doing that when he was gone, and or what would oh, he, he do for a career? On working on road construction. Sure. Before the most time, he was a grader operator, and uh, and would that be for the state at that time or county? No, for a private. It was a private company out okay. of Hibbing, Minnesota. And just traveling all over the place, then I yeah, imagine not not all over the place. Uh, a lot in upper Midwest of uh, of Minnesota. They basically very seldom left Minnesota, but mm-hmm. uh, it was basically a local company sure. between, let's say, the Iron Range and Duluth area. Sure, sure. But imagine coming from blue collar home, and you get up through high school. That's when you start to expect to deal figure out a job or in my case it was what do you want you know my I think it was my sophomore year the first time somebody asked me well what do you want to go to college for and I'm 14 15 16 years old and it's like I don't know I want to go buy the pop out of the pop machine right now because I'm living 30 seconds at a time (laughs) (laughs) but did 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 you have conversations like that to try to prepare you for the next step if you will no, to be very honest, in 1964, when I graduated, one of the biggest things about it was, um, be frank with you, avoiding the draft. And uh, I, I went to Hibbing um, uh, Junior College for a year, and I didn't do well there. It wasn't that I... Couldn't have done well, but I just didn't because it was more, more uh, a party and games than study. I'm in the same boat. And it's the uh, yeah, it's nothing to be proud of, but it's uh, but in those days also, the uh, you only paid like twenty six dollars a credit hour <laughs> compared to what you had now. You no. could afford not to do well. Mm -hmm. And then I was asked not to come back. Or they, in a nice way. Right, yeah. (laughs) They send you the letter of, hey, get out of here. I was just joking with my dad the other week that I have my master's in beer and doctorate in liquor from college. (laughs) That's about all I got out of it. (laughs) And I, um, and then, then shortly after, I got a, that was about September of 60, September of 65, I guess. And, uh, and then I got my draft notice about October. Well, then it was like report in a month or get on, get on the bus in Hibbing and go to Fort Snelling. Mm-hmm. But then they delayed that, so so actually it came down to be like uh, 
oh, get on the bus uh, January January 1st, like uh, right after right after or right at New Year's Day and uh, go down. You have your physical, they pump and prod and poke and you follow the yellow <laughs> footprints. And then, uh, like I think I told you the story last night, we were in, went into this little classroom and a gentleman came in and said, there's some of you people have got a manila envelope in front of you. You people stand up and come with me. Were those folders there as you filed them to the classroom yeah. already? Okay. They were already on. So it wasn't an instructor coming by and handing you anything? No, no. It, is, it, okay. it was already because you were in alphabetical order sure. kind of. And so they knew. They knew who you, you yep. were. And uh, then I figured, well, my total thoughts is no envelope for me. I'm getting out of this. <laughs> getting out of this whole mess. Well, then it was about maybe five, six minutes later, another gentleman came and he was dressed in navy whites. He said, well, gee whiz, we didn't, didn't say anything about the navy. And the rest of you fellas get up and follow me. I didn't realize at the time that the um, the Navy and the Marine Corps are connected at the hip. <laughs> so walk into this room with the yellow footprints and we all got in line and all this stuff and then they let us know, welcome to the United States Marine Corps. If you're in the wrong fucking room. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the long and the short of it. it and uh, you, you mentioned last night that you had a card. So you got your draft yeah, oh, yes. card we, that you could fill did. out what branch you wanted. Yeah, you want to explain a, that? Yeah. We had a, uh, we were given the option. Got a little four by four inch card with Army, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, uh, Air Force in. I guess Coast Guard or something on it. And uh, the two at the three at the bottom, Coast Guard and Coast Guard, Navy and Air Force were already blocked in and it says little science is not applicable. <laughs> so there was the two choices. Army or Marines. Uh, and that's... Army and so I definitely with my pen cross army <laughs> and that's where i am in this little room with a eagle globe and <laughs> but i did have my choice mm -hmm. it, i just want to back it up a little bit so yeah. you got your draft letter or draft notice in the mail i assume did, yes, your, sir. did your parents open that up for you and read it and or did you get it i'm just curious what was the conversation like getting that between you and your parents it was, you know, it's, it was very matter of, matter of fact. See, my father got his draft notice and his brothers all, it was, it was a way of life for them, whether it be Korea 
Um, say, you know, well, like uh, they said, well, I guess going in, I guess you're going in the army. It it wasn't like, it was nothing like let's go to Canada, Canada or right. Swan Lake or somewhere else. <laughs> it was, well, you're going in the military. And, uh, and then it was like, uh, uh, you kind of got resigned to that. I wasn't, you had anxiety about it, mm -hmm. but I didn't have, I didn't have any real big fear of it. I wasn't going to run to go to Canada or anything. I mean, my dad and his brothers and most of the people we knew of that age had all served in the Second World War. So it it just, when the time came, I went. And so this was 65, 64, 65? Yeah, 65. I'm trying to think. And I, I don't Like I said, I started the new year off right in 1966, January 2nd. And this <laughs> was right when it was really starting to ramp up over there for us. It was starting to ramp up, but we had, it what? wasn't... The really bad stuff started January third of ninth January thirty first or thirtieth of nineteen sixty eight mm -hmm. when Tet went to hell. So yeah, hey, did your your dad serve? You mentioned before we started recording, he was in the army. I mean, did he give you any advice or parting thoughts? You know, I've heard guys, you know, siblings that have gone in. My some of my siblings went in the military, and I have some younger siblings going in, and they said, "Yeah, don't do this, that, or the other thing because you're really gonna piss. You're gonna stand out with your with your drill class." And I think the but the only thing Dad says is don't do, don't do anything. Basically, don't do anything stupid. <laughs> yeah, I I or not stupid or you know, uh, that. There's a lot of ways you can get yourself hurt. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, use your head. Did your did your mom say anything? I mean, was she... Not really. I no. think she was quite concerned. She, mom was, my mom was a real worrier and uh, stuff like that. But, uh, no, it was like, uh, back then you, back then you didn't, when you got the draft notice order, you didn't write your congressman or call the president or something. I mean, you, you, it was a basic thing of life. When you, and this I believe in right now to this day, I don't think it would hurt all the children in this country. To go, I don't mean let's go start a war so they'll right. have a job. To take and learn the meaning of yes and no from somebody other than their parents. Mm -hmm. And so you you mentioned you went down to from Hibbing area or uh, Cherry, Minnesota, yeah. down to Fort Snelling. Yeah. What they call it nowadays, uh, maps. I believe is it what they call it, where they kind of. Get in, get in, in line and do in your physical and yeah. do the shots. Is that where you did that? That was yeah. called Fort Snelling. That wasn't basic, though. I assume. No, no, basic. No, no. That was uh, that was a induction center or something. Sure. So, what was it like 
what's it what's going through your head as you're going through this you're still hoping against hope you'll get rejected <laughs> no i really i i i wasn't in a way i figured if they would have said no your eyes are too bad or whatever your feet are too flat or whatever i and they said you do not qualify i would have been uh totally happy because you know when you're going or asked to go into a strange situation that you've never been in if you say there isn't some anxiety you'd be lying <laughs> right and uh but other than that no it was it wasn't anything earth shattering went down there followed the yellow footprints and did what they told and passed in flying colors and then we were put on an airplane and next thing we knew we were in San Diego, California. <laughs> Would that be what what's out in San Diego? Is it Pendleton in in California? No, the uh, MCRD. Sure. Marine Corps Recruit Depot. San Diego, California. And did they just roll you right into boot camp? Or is it basic or boot camp with Marine Corps? I know. It's boot camp. It is boot camp. I catch so much flack because my si my older sister and brother-in-law are both Marines. And if I say the wrong thing, I catch all sorts of hell for it. <laughs> oh, then, then congratulations to them. They, they're life, life, are they lifers or? Are yeah, they yep. Yeah, they're both shooting for the, at least the 20 year mark. I know oh. my, my sister is for sure. And that's just to provide, you know, education, funding and, and insurance oh, and yeah. for their, their kid. And uh, my brother-in-law, for sure 20 i wouldn't be surprised if he went in longer than that but that changes you talk to him on monday he's all for it and then you talk to him on wednesday he goes i want to get out of here tomorrow <laughs> yeah it, it's really the military is basically like any other job mm -hmm. it's got its ups and downs would you say you have the perfect job no not by a long shot. Yeah, and you know, and <laughs> some days you're really glad. Hey, I got a good job, and, th and then other days I think, if I could get out of this cotton packing place. <laughs> so, what was it like for you going into boot camp? What was your day to day like when you were down there? In a word, they these people are professionals you know you hear all the screaming and yelling about that it's a psychological trip mm -hmm. and when you're green as grass and you get off you get off one thing that's burnt indelibly into my mind there's like six or this is two o'clock in the morning and all I remember hearing is these uh, buses racing across the tarmac to the other, to where they picked up the draftees. And you kind of figure, well, yeah, somebody would come out and kind of say, welcome you aboard. <laughs> no. It started out. A screaming and yelling match 
from the first second he opened his mouth. And uh, and then you kind of figured that, well, it's just 2 o'clock in the morning, we figured, well, we're going to go in and get our haircut, and then they're going to let us sleep for a while. No, that didn't happen either. <laughs> and there was nothing nice about really there was it was welcome welcome to the Marine Corps it was all the way from the haircut and the haircut wasn't because the haircut didn't hurt but then you had to go get your uh, get your clothes you put all your civvy clothes into a bag and they were sent home or something like that. But here you, <laughs> then you get in line and if you're going by your trousers, you take them, they, somebody stand there with a tape measure and they measure you and said, this is a 34 whatever. And then you'd go there and say 30 and this nice guy behind there threw two or three pair of green dungarees hit you in the face and they didn't care. <laughs> and here's the here's your shirts too and they throw them at you. <laughs> I mean really and that's uh, and your socks and underwear were the same thing. And then you're in a panic trying to while well, you're in a panic, picking them off the floor, and they're screaming at you, and you get your shit off, get out of here, get and just, huh? It just, yeah, it. That's exactly the way it was, you know. <laughs> one thing I'll say that one of the best, I've got to say, if you've ever seen that movie Full Metal Jacket, yep. That is a, I I don't mean the uh, killing of the drill instructor and right. stuff like that, <clears throat> but the stuff leading up to it and the, uh, like if you if you make a mistake, then all of your buddies pay for it. That type it it is that R. Lee Ermy he. And that movie, that part of the movie was phenomenal. It's 100% mm -hmm. uh, true, including the yellow sweatshirts. <laughs> I think I've got that yellow sweatshirt of mine somewhere, unless we've used it for a grease rag some other time. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that they gave him the script that he is supposed to use for the movie. He read it over and threw it away and ad-libbed the whole thing because he had that experience. Uh, and I've heard people say that he wasn't actually a gunny sergeant or not, yada, yada, either way. But yeah, I don't I, know. Was... I don't know what in real life what, but uh, you couldn't have found a better man to portray. What, gunnery sergeant Hartman? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it, that... That was totally <laughs> To this very day, you get the, gee whiz, you're, whoa, you're, 
hair stands on the back of your neck. <laughs> just and uh yeah, that just that voice they have and there's really there's no boss you could ever have could intimidate you like them guys could. Did you have any of your uh, drill insurgents kind of stick out? You know, maybe they, because I've had guys talk about, you know, they reach that hump in, in boot camp and it gets easier on the backside and they find a, almost a mentor like figure with their drill instructors. I mean, did, was there anybody like that when you were there that stands out to you? You know, after 12 weeks, there was, uh, oh, you, and like one, one person, uh, these are, and when was it, 1966, okay? How many years has that been? I I know the God darn, their name and rank to this day. You had Sergeant Lewis, he was a four-year Marine, and that's the last thing he wanted to do was become a drill instructor. So he went to drill instructor school. <laughs> and he had served his tour in Vietnam, and he mm -hmm. was getting out. He was getting out right after we, we were done. And then, then the other drill instructor was Staff Sergeant Blue. He was a black man. He was kind of, the, if you mention a fatherly figure, you know, kind of guy that would tuck us in or something. I mean, he, was, he wasn't as vicious as Lewis The was. good cop and the bad cop. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And then we had the platoon commander. Oh, crap. His <laughs> Staff Sergeant Hunt. And he was in like, had been in like 24 years and uh, a few people, I mean, it, I'm sure things have changed. Well, he's long dead by now, I'm sure, but he reeked of alcohol. I mean, if he came to inspect the formation, and you were in the second row, you could smell that god darn alcohol on his <laughs> breath. <laughs> Excuse me. Bye. And, uh, yeah, Staff Sergeant, well, Sergeant Lewis, Sergeant Blue, and Staff Sergeant Hunt. Those, those are names you'll indelibly <laughs> burnt into your brain. And I, I listening and talking to guys that serve from 1990 and forward, the it seems like the goal of basic or boot camp was <coughs> to put more stress on you than you'd ever find in combat. I mean, was that the case with you, do you feel? But they were they were intentionally pushing those stressors, and so that by the time you get to combat, it's just another day in the office, if you will. Beyond and I was never an infantry rifleman, but no, I don't agree with that. That that you can somebody can scream and yell at you in the office. And that's fine. You can say, screw him. When there's somebody shooting at you, that's a totally different story. 
so it's uh it it may be something to train you how to deal with stress but it's just like uh, watching a movie and see what the if well, well a very good movie that one uh that well, the saving private ryan mm -hmm. you know it's you can imagine in your mind what it was like when they uh, made the invasion there's there's no explaining it to those guys who were actually there. Mm -hmm. We're watching a movie. They're watching death happen in front of them. Right. So, I mean, not to get dramatic about no, it, no. but there's there's far different between a real thing and a, uh, having somebody yell at you. Right. But uh, after... After basic, the AIT comes after that. Yeah, we cut. Yeah, that's AIT. Where, and that's where you select your MOS at that point, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. AIT. Uh, I think the Marine Corps called it advanced infantry training or something like that. Yeah, that was. Uh, and there's one thing that I, I always thought in my mind that uh, I think the Marine Corps does the right way, and we already passed it. Part of the 12 weeks was three weeks we spent on the rifle range. Because every Marine is a rifleman, yeah, basic, no matter rank. Yeah, yeah, no matter what. And they do a tremendous job. And right then again, there's what they call a... Uh, this gentleman was a sergeant. He was a Hawaiian. His name name was uh, Sergeant Kawaihai, and he, he is what they call a PMI, or Primary Marksmanship Instructor. And he, you know, if uh, there was guys, one or two people that had, a lot of these people have never picked up a rifle or really, no, they barely knew which end to use. No, I mean, it was, yeah. uh, to be very fair to them, not to, but... Uh, and it, it, the, that's been on where you grow yeah. up, and where half my family, they're, yeah. they live in the woods for three months yeah. of the year for hunting season, where I personally did not grow up around hunting oh. at all. So. I thought from Spooner, you definitely... Well, I grew up in Hudson. It's a little bit more... more Hud uh, oh, Hudson. Oh, okay. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> But no, that and that was uh, that was a very important part. That uh, and uh, you talk about a fellow who could, you could have a young guy. There was a a Hispanic kid. His name was Grajeda, and he was totally befuddled with this. Uh, well, he had a language problem. To and I mean, he's a good enough guy, uh, but he he was like one bullet away from being a what they call a non-qual that didn't get 
to the basic marksmanship uh, ranking. And this, I actually I was about three people down, and I was done shooting, and I was, but just sitting there listening to this Kawaii talk to him. He says, "Yeah, no, I mean enough." He says, you know, breathe and breathe and, you know, just don't snap it off. Just, he talked him, he qualified by one point. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff like that, uh, even though it was only shooting, it was, uh, that Sergeant Kawaii, he was, he was a real teacher. Mm -hmm. So. Enough said on that. And, <laughs> but then, like, that AIT, we didn't, we did the basic stuff like crawling under barbed wire and having them uh, fire machine guns over our head and that kind of stuff. Whether they had live ammo or not, we, to this day, I don't know yet. But when you hear machine gun fire, you, you notice. And then they said, and by the way, while you're crawling around there, there's a lot of rattlesnakes in this area. <laughs> so, and then, okay. And we did the basic, it was all infantry train, infantry training, how to, you know, how to set up a patrol, how to set up an ambush how to do this, how to do... But because we were, at the time, all basically going to be infantry. Like they told us, they said, 80% of you are going to be infantry. Because that... 1966, that's what they wanted. Right. They wanted warm bodies. Mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you, out of like 80-man platoon... There's only 19 of us who were anything but infantrymen. And did they, did did you get to select your MOS if you're not going to be infantry, or did they this guy? Hey, by the way, here you, you go. You gave, uh, you know, one I forget exactly where it was taken. Whether it be was when we <clears throat> tested or somewhere along the line you were uh, taking these fill-in-the-blank uh, booklet of tests and stuff. So I guess your abilities, you know, what, whether it was mechanical ability you were good at or whatever. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's, that's where that came into being. In. And then that just... Uh, I think it was sometime at the end of AIT, they just just told me, well, uh, you know, the kind way that Koski or 1811. Which is? Tank crewman. Sure. And that was the end of that. Then they move on to the next guy. <laughs> and then after that, But after, so once you're told you're 1811, do you kind of, does your path go down a different route? 
Then yeah. somebody that's yeah. just going to be, yeah. uh, what is it, exactly. 11 Bravo, I think, is this basic infantryman. If I remember right. Or Bravo is infantry. But but. We're talking 50 years ago. Too, right. So yeah. they, that, that 1811 was uh, our MOS at the time. And now there could be, I think there's another 1833 or whatever, 18, some, you know, different MOSs and they, you know things change in fifty years, <laughs> and no, the and then we went to uh, tank school. They taught us the basic stuff and the weight of the machine and how to. That was only four weeks, and you you really learned really fast. You thought you knew something. When it came to real life and really operating in jungle area or all that stuff, getting stuck, breaking down, <laughs> hitting mines, they didn't show us anything except how to get deeper into trouble. I mean, <laughs> I, you could, you could show a five-year-old boy how to get a tank going forward. But what would he do after that? Right. In the training for, for a tank crew, do they kind of break it down like, all right, so, Koski, you're going to be our driver. You're going to be our, our, our commander. And yeah. uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be the, the reloader or whatever. Or is it more of here's how to do all the different jobs so you each know what the other has to be doing? Yeah. it's Yeah, you're told what you're like a, a loader – which I was part, I I drove part-time, and it really came down to the, whether, who the tank commander was at. Because when you've got a 13-month rotation, you know, you might have two or three different tank commanders because somebody would, let's say a gentleman had wound up in the hospital or something, and he had been wounded. Well, then, rather than sending back to the old company, he was sent to a different company, so the, wherever they needed that, where spot they filled. yeah, yeah, plug you in here or there, or whatever, and yeah, but no, we we all got a chance to uh, learn, you know, how to you know, basically clean machine guns, make them. Like on the tanks we had, we had a 50 caliber machine gun and a 30 caliber. Well, they taught you how to clean them, put them back together, and make sure they worked once you put them back together. With it, there's the thing they call the headspace and stuff on there, that, and so that they'd be a functioning gun, mm -hmm. and then. Driving, it was kind of, uh, uh, there was no real obstacles in in driving. You know, a lot of it was driving down a, the, driving down the beach at, uh, I think it was like Las Pogas or some California. Well, there's not. Then you had to go over a few little humps or. It was, you know, and then they say, okay, you get out of there, and then the next guy goes and 
rotates in there for his 25 minutes. And uh, and then the tank commander, you didn't even hardly think about that. And then then we all, when we went to the gunnery range, uh, they, they uh, learned how to, uh, like on, like now, everything is automatic. Mm -hmm. There, it was like, remember how cameras used to be? Like you had the two images, mm -hmm. and you'd turn this wheel until uh, two images until came in. The, then in the, there's a crosshair there, so you knew it, your range was on the right range, and then you'd... Uh, uh, put your crosshair over the, the over the target and uh, push a red button and the rest is history. <laughs> you know, shot at old blown up tanks or uh, paper targets and stuff like that. And so it it was uh, it uh, it was pretty good. It was. Pretty good basic trade, and then they had also your radio. The tanks have got radios, so they how to get on certain frequencies and all this stuff. How you know a tank is a pretty complicated piece of machinery, mm -hmm. and you don't learn anything about them in four weeks, right? And, uh, you know, you say, hey, I can recognize that as a tank over there. But that's about it. I, <laughs> you know, and then you say, well, I'm going to go operate this in uh, rice paddies and going over dikes and all this stuff. You, you don't learn any of that. They didn't have very many rice paddies and dikes in <laughs> California. But... No, okay, enough of that. But I guess it was a good school as far as it went. Mm -hmm. But it's only you don't learn much in four weeks, right? And, well, speaking of the radio communications, I I know there's the code language and course yeah. coordinates and everything like that. Were they teaching you that at the same time or yeah. parallel to that? Yeah, so that, you, had you a, mean uh, uh, Alpha Bravo, uh, Charlie, and all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know what kind of language they call that, but it's uh, not necessarily be kind of sign or, language, yeah, whatever. It but they're teaching you that at the same time, yeah. So that, but would everybody at least be proficient in it if something yeah. were to happen, kind of deal? So after after your AIT and you know learning to be a tankerman, from there, where did what happened? Where did you go? Did they ship you out right away, or no? I went home for a month. Yeah, that you got thirty days leave, and you you come out of there after you had graduated from boot camp. You're all pumped up and invincible. <laughs> you know, I, like they people would say, ten feet tall and bulletproof. <laughs> right. Well, how old are how old were you when you graduated? Twenty. Twenty. And of course, yeah, that's the mentality. I think every yeah sixteen to. Well, I was 25 yeah. when I finally decided I should probably grow up and realize I don't have a bulletproof vest on. <laughs>
was it was it was it nice for you to come home and kind of did you get a chance to decompress from the training i, I know there's a lot of stress and you're trying to learn you know 100 hours worth of work in eight hours no it's uh it was it was fun in see your see your friends and uh family and all this kind of stuff and then then you uh at your own quiet time you you realize hey this is only temporary they got other plans for us mm -hmm. so there there's a certain amount of anxiety i don't i don't care if it's uh, going into combat or jumping out of an airplane you've got that big question, what if? So, did you did you get a bunch of downtime? Did your parents catch you a break, if you will, or was it, hey, you're back? Well, we need help with this right now. Uh no, I I remember my dad and I spent quite a bit of time out at the cabin. It wasn't uh, what it is now. Actually, that's when. Dad and I were digging out that clay for where the back room of the basement is. Right. Okay. So oh, is that some before your deployment? Yeah. Got it. Okay. And you get a, every bit of work out of me. They <laughs> Did you have orders for where you're going to be going oh, yeah. before that? And so you already knew this oh, yeah. is the day you need to fly out it and where said, you're going? It said Westpac, and there's only one place in Westpac. <laughs> and then there's other letters called RVN, Republic of Vietnam. Sure. So, Did they, and I imagine they didn't tell you that this is the airfield you're going to be flying into or anything like that, but you knew you were going to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, and you're, you were dispatched on a whole... There's a whole bunch of whole plane load of people. So, um, actually, in my case, or our case, it was right before. Right before they were starting. In fact, we got credit for it. I don't know why, but on my, got credit for uh, Operation Hastings. And. I don't know if we got even close to Operation Hastings because, but that's what I've got in my little folder. That, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, first of all, I was flown to Okinawa. Well, all Marines were flown to Okinawa first. That's their dropping off point where you uh, turn in your your uh, dress uniforms and stuff like that, that your duffel bag that you, you're not going to be needing. And then they give you another duffel bag for your work clothes or whatever. And so spent about, I don't know, a couple, three or four days there. And then I was flown to Subic Bay in the Philippines. And that's where I was supposed to get on the, uh, what the heck was it? USS Princeton is a, what they call a landing ship dock, LSD. And so joined the company there. And uh, 
and then uh, we sailed to uh, outside of. Uh, it was part of. I don't know where the. At that time, we were so green as grass. We didn't know up from down anyway. <laughs> but you know, the off the coast of Vietnam, and then we were used. Then they said, well, we're going to go in on landing craft. Well, we didn't go in on landing craft because we had tanks. You don't just drop them in the ocean. So they brought this LST in as short as they could. And luckily, we were just about uh, out of the water already. And that dropped the ramp and whoever was driving drove it off and, and uh, everybody played follow the leader, kind of. <laughs> you know, nobody knew where the hell we're going. Mm -hmm. Saw a bunch of these grass huts there on the beach. So we think and sit there and somebody with authority came by and says, well, you guys set up your, we all had our cots, you know, military cots. And, well, set up your cots in these grass shacks here. So that's as close as we got. That was the first two or three days. Figured, gee whiz, this is a, I mean, really when you're green and grass and don't know anything, this is a hell of a way to fight a war. I mean, <laughs> what, do, what do we have here? They give us the volleyball net. <laughs> it's a nice little vacation. <laughs> yeah, we're... Then a lot of guys made the mistake, though, then I, I didn't, but... They were, you know, guys were... And they said, yeah, okay. And somebody even brought us some beer, I think. And, or did they get it from the CBs or somebody? The guys were laying out in the sun and getting fried. <laughs> and, I mean, some of them were really in bad shape. You know, drunk and that had never seen that direct sunlight like they had there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... We were there for, I'd say, maybe a week or... And uh, then they sent us inland, so... Were you with any of the guys that you went through basic and training with, or was this an all-new company that you have to you know, start fresh with? Uh, yeah, there was nobody in that company that I knew. You were in from the when I got on the USS Princeton. I knew nobody. I, in fact, I had a little incident on the Princeton. I didn't realize this from boot camp, but the guy, when you board a ship, you salute the flag and the officer of the deck who stands on on top. Well, I didn't... I, I remembered to salute the ship, 
because the big flag's there, but I walked up there and uh, walked right by. I, I don't know if I said good afternoon or something, and I walked on the thing. He said, son, can I speak to you for a moment? <laughs> and then I noticed he had, he was an officer, sure. so then he says, uh, about the uh, saluting the officer of the deck and the uh, and then the ship also. So and then after that, like I said, we sailed sailed to the Philippines or sailed to Vietnam mm -hmm. after the Philippines. And you said you're you're kind of on the beach, if you will, for about a week or so. Yeah. It, where did you go from there? What what did they have you doing? Yeah, we it was follow the leader. They said, Well, head north. So we headed up that toward we headed up toward Da Nang, but we were actually start getting into trouble south of Da Nang. There was a a ville or a town called Hoi An. That's where we took and wound up yeah, uh, got in some problems there, and and then eventually we see the big problem there in '66 when tanks first arrived in the country. I don't know what the army did, but the Marine Corps didn't really know how to use them. So what we did for another couple of weeks is they brought us up. After Hoi An, they brought us up to Da Nang and played uh, guard duty on the air base until they said, what are these tanks sitting here for? <laughs> and uh, then we started going on a lot of endless amount of... Uh, then they sent us out to a outpost they called a Marble Mountain. It was a Marine Corps... Uh, first Marine Corps, uh, Marine Corps First Division headquarters there, and that's when we started going on on all these nonsensical uh, patrols. They call them roving patrols, which a lot of times meant nothing. But uh, then other times you'd you know had problems or hit mines or whatever it had. They knew they knew we were coming, so they knew right, right. where where the where the place their minds and whatever. Mm -hmm. so. And I can't imagine it was easy to navigate a tank through jungle territory. No, well, there wasn't very much jungle right there, but uh, you know when you've when you've got a something in front of you and there's tank tracks that go around to the right of it and around the left of it, you'd really kind of like to say, well, I think I'm going to go right down the middle. Right. But there's these big trees there. So, so you take in, uh, you just automatically, you hit, uh, you make your best guess, or usually I always let the tank commander, it says, well, go to the right. And then he might say something like, 
stay out of the tracks. You know, like mm. try like if there's tracks there like this, and then you'd go over like this and kind of split the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh yes. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> well, just talk about on your way up to Da Nang, you said you ran into some trouble there. Was yeah. that your first time seeing combat at that point? I mean, what was it like for you? you know, you're in a tank, you're armored. I mean, were you a focal point of enemy, fi enemy fire, or was it more that you're just there in the way? No, actually, it was the tank in front of us who was the focal point of they're they're the ones that got hit. They they hit a mine and then they were also hit by an RPG rocket. So and so they were. Everybody was kind of. Uh, they pulled into a kind of a position. Like, one would go off. One vehicle went off to his left side, and one off to his right, just to cover basically cover the crew that was inside there because mm -hmm. at the moment we didn't know if that thing was going to go off like a Roman candle or what. Then, then again, we were greener than grass. You know, I mean, it. they, they say you, you learn all this stuff in boot camp and tank school. <laughs> you don't learn stuff. Nothing. So, yeah, and uh, and then there was other vehicles also, like we had uh, Amtrak's. You know, like, well, you know what Am Amtrak's are the amphibious landing craft, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. Ducks, no, I think they call yeah, them. Yeah, so maybe they're. Yeah, ducks came after. Okay. <laughs> but. And yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, and that that was a that was the first first time that we ever you know. Uh, it's funny when you don't even realize you got this communications helmet on your head, and you you don't even realize until people are doing all these panicky things. I saw I saw the mine go off in front of that right on the left side of that tank. But it's it's so noisy inside you don't hear uh you don't hear gunfire. Mm -hmm. Well I suppose nowadays we're using the M1 Abrams. I mean what oh. what tank were you in oh, during your time? We had like I said last night, the that that what M seventy one Abrams or whatever it mm -hmm. was. Our tanks were called an M48A3. It's a 90 millimeter medium tank. And compared to the Abrams, it's like a slingshot. And I mean, it was a good vehicle. Mm -hmm. It was a, a Korean and Vietnam, Korean and Second World War vintage. So, and they had many, it started out as a, uh, M48, and if you everyone look, you can look it up on your uh, on your uh, Google or whatever, and uh, then they always move up from 
M48 to M48A1, M48A2, M48A3, whatever. What difference they made, I don't, I don't know, but. Yeah, I mean, for you being in the tank, I mean, did you feel, for lack of a better word, safer compared to an infantry where you're just, you're exposed to all the elements. Where, oh, yeah. I mean, you have this shell of armor around you. But they also told us a little fallacy. They ain't got anything over there to take a tank out. <laughs> they must not have heard about RPGs yet. <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that. And didn't, you know, we, just as we were going into, I forget where we were going, we see these, there was a bunch of, outside of our, outside of the first tank's, headquarters or there was a bunch of it looked like a junkyard but it was all these orange looking well that turned out to be rust like uh, burnt out tanks Amtraks uh, figured gee whiz something must have gotten to them guys I mean so yeah, they, they, for the most part, it, we, we didn't face the stuff that they used, like, during the Second World War, like, anti-tank guns and stuff. Mm -hmm. That probably came later in, let's say, after, in Tet, and I don't, I can't speak to Tet in 68, because that, I was... Uh, I was darn near out of the Marine Corps by that time. Sure. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, next question. <laughs> what? Well, from on your way up to Da Nang, from there, did they station you at Da Nang for a while? Did they, what What were they having you doing at that well, time? I'd, I'd say we spent maybe, if I remember right, we might have spent a week. And they'd, at night or in the evening, they'd send us out there to guard this air base. You'd watch the, watch the uh, airplanes come in and go out. And uh, a few times, few times there was, uh, and this was another thing that, you know, for a new person, it's just scared the hell out of you. But they'd, I guess just for effect, the, uh, Viet Cong would drop a few mortars in just to grab our attention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that for a new person, I mean, after a while, you didn't take that kind of... If it was a three, four hundred yards away from you, you'd say, well, so what? That's a... But when you're brand new, green as grass, <laughs> there... That was serious in my little mind. Did you? Were you the one? You know what they call it? Yeah, hit the dirt while other guys are standing around. Like, oh, this is fine. I've talked to other guys. Uh, their first time being in combat, their fifth or sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. It's just like, oh, it's no big deal. I, I had a guest on. He was talking about 
he was, I think he was on his first or second deployment, but there for six months or so, and they had small arms fire coming overhead, and he he's a stand there around the corner and smoke a cigarette. One shot came about six feet over his head. His buddy next to him immediately dropped down, like, what are you doing? Take cover. He goes, no, it's cool. They're missing, and keeps smoking a cigarette like no big deal. Did you have experience like that? Yeah. Yeah, and... All depends on how close, like, a lot of times if you were, let's say, from here to, let's say, 50 yards away from a tree line or some green shrubbery or a paddy dike, and you heard rifle fire coming out of there, you, you better, because at 50 yards, you don't know which way it's had it mm-hmm. so no there was times and there was other times that uh, you didn't pay much didn't didn't pay much attention to it and then other times you were hyper alert would you say would that be dependent on location of where you were or time of day or anything like that well, where you were and what time, uh, you know, you wanted to make sure you had a place to go and stuff like that when it got dark. Mm-hmm. And first, I, so, you know, you, we talked about briefly last night that yeah, I think you said you're on the move and your tank commander was hit yeah. back of the head. It, was that your, was that fairly seasoned in combat or was that early on when you're when very one of the first experiences do you, do you mind this kind of re-explaining that story again yeah it i didn't have you know the first thing uh did was uh called for a corpsman and found out that there's nothing it could do so, well, I mean, what happened to him exactly uh, last he night? Was shot by, yeah. He was shot by a sniper. And he, so tank commander, he's just sitting outside the hatch or riding on the back of the tank. And, he, yeah, he was in his, in his hatch. And were you guys just on, on a patrol or were you moving point A to point B at that time? Were you expecting any resistance, I guess? It was almost kind of like a... One of these nonsensical patrols. We weren't really expecting much. We were going through some areas. There's some some hooches. We were on a on a road. It didn't. We went on so many of these what they they used to call them roving patrols. We didn't really expect that much of anything. Mm-hmm. And that's what you say that you get. Uh, you, uh, you got to expect the unexpected. And was that, was that the first ta- casualty your crew took at that yeah. time? And I mean, what's going through your head and your your crew's head at that point? I mean, how do you, Basically, how do you move forward from there? I guess, for lack of better words. Basically, after we found out there's nothing we could do. And we had to remove, uh, I mean, 
remove him out of the, basically, uh, it was out of the turret, then out of the tank commander's hatch, and there was nothing more we could do. And uh, another, I think it was a lieutenant or somebody came over and took over the vehicle. And uh, uh, just kept on going on this nonsense patrol. It wasn't like we had a memorial service at at uh, base when we got back a couple of days later, but nothing. You know, it's not like oh, somebody got uh, somebody got hurt, injured, or killed. And we're going to stop this, and we're going right. to turn around and go home. Keep moving it just, forward. Just like a train, it keeps on going. What's it like then for you? You know, and the biggest thing for me, I'm in corporate America. I have a team that I rely on, and we have our relationships and rapport established. For you, you part of the crew, you guys have your own rapport, and all of a sudden there's this new guy in. I mean, how yeah. was it a difficult transition from there, or is it... Hi, my name is Bob, and I'm here to do my no, job. No, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, that. Not to be crass, but we had this had been only we had only been together like for a week, or and you were kind of in the. You're. I was trying to do my job, and we were kind of trying to get in and uh, uh, feel our way around, see how uh, the other crew members would re react to me or uh, how the tank commander, you know, what he thought about what you're doing and mm -hmm. stuff. You know, it was, it was too early. We had, I guess, hadn't really... Uh, gotten any we hadn't really gotten any uh, gotten to know each other that well like if you had been with a group uh, for three or four months or something like that you knew these people you'd know their family and all this stuff yeah. and did you get to get to know the guys over time while you're there, were oh, you yeah. in the same crew, or did you have a lot of people filling in and out? They, there was quite a bit of that moving in and out. Like one thing I've said about that whole confusion of that Vietnam conflict is, uh, you know, like it's almost like, you know, you if you'd been like when I left the country, they came. And got me. They says, "Koski, you be you, you're you're out of here." Okay, that was sometime in August. Okay, and then they said, "You got ten minutes to get your shit on that chopper." <laughs> and uh, okay, and then they said, "Well." You know, I expected it would be something like that, but then they uh, took me back 
to the to our base, which was called Mag 16, as the Marine Air Group, where a lot of choppers flew out of there. And I just uh, got my stuff, and I I I guess I told the crew, you know, have a but it was. I mean, it's like this, like, if you're in a play for high school and you do your, do your part, you get, you say your lines or whatever, and you do that, and then they pick you out of there, and you never learn how the story ended. That that's basically how. That's why I think it's far better now that they're sending groups of people in together. Mm-hmm. And well, for you and I imagine you know you mentioned you know you had you know, Koski, you got ten minutes, get your shit, get out. Tanks are not the most spacious things to be in. I mean, did, how much, if at all, personal items were you allowed to have, or how much room did you have to keep your stuff in there? Or did you keep the majority of it back on base? Well, kept. They had. Um, there's a rack on the back of a. Uh, on these particular tanks, there was a rack on the back called the gypsy rack. That's what, you know, it's uh, the term they used anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, art. A tank commander had gotten, or whether a tank commander or somebody in charge, maybe one of the officers in charge of the company, had gotten these 40 millimeter ammo boxes. So there was room for four of them. They were about about this long and about this uh, and about yay deep. So what, two feet? Long, three feet, uh, yeah. two feet tall. And so you take in, had each guy had his own uh, ammo box for his, uh, his fall weather gear or clean set of clothes, stuff like that, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that's where, that's where we kept, and the rest of it was, uh, kept in our sea bag back at the home compound. So when you weren't when you weren't on at the compound, I mean what was your day to day like for you in the tank? I mean what were your responsibilities as part of the crew? A lot of times it was I remember one time we were supposed to be guarding this river or not a guard we weren't guarding the river. The river was in fine shape. We're allegedly guarding a bridge so that the Viet Cong wouldn't blow it up. So it was that much. We must have spent about six weeks there, looking at that, looking at that, looking at the water going by, <laughs> and then. Uh, if there's something that was uh, suspicious, you'd, you'd open fire at, you know, there's a lot of nonsensical stuff that really didn't make a whole lot of sense, but 
you know, you could always say, oh, yeah, it could have been something. You never know. Mm -hmm. So. Did you get much downtime over there when you weren't, you know, looking at the water, if you will? Did you have downtime? Yeah, down where you're not. Is on the clock, if you will, whether it's just hanging out at the oh, chow yeah. hall or doing maintenance stuff on the tank or anything like that. Well, yeah, actually, actually, in that situation, it was more almost, almost more boredom than anything else. We did our uh, maintenance, but when you're sitting in one spot, then you adjusting the track or tightening up uh, end connectors or on a on the track and that holds the track together and you tighten those bolts as tight as they'll go and but if you haven't moved they're not going to loosen up overnight <laughs> and you clean and get in get inside with the the turret and Sweep this because there's a lot of sand there. So you sweep up as much sand uh, and uh, clean up, clean up everything as best as you can. And then that's not gonna. As long as you're not on the road, it's not gonna come back. Make sure your uh, guns are in good order and uh, if you want, then do stuff like write letters home or. Uh, lay around and do nothing just have one guy on the turret looking at the river just just in case something were to yeah. pop up and did you ever have a moment or moments where you were in full-blown combat where you know you're firing the main cannon or whatever the case may be i wouldn't say it was like when you talk about full-on combat, you're talking the the Hollywood yeah, that, romanticized. We had many occasions, or a few occasions, I'll I'll say where we had had to fire off. Maybe see what would usually happen is you'd be going going down this trail, and like what happened to us, we hit a mine. And it took out most of the left side of the, uh, that, um, most of the suspension on the left side of the vehicle. So we were stopped in one spot. But they had seen where the, uh, then they started firing at us. And uh, so the uh, tank commander kind of traversed the, turret in that direction and our gunner he he took and uh so he's uh he says uh, you over this comm helmet he says uh oh uh and then uh said something about you know you know fire the had told the gunner that fire at will and I um uh, I had a regular high explosive HE round in the chamber already. And uh, so I said, uh, I said, Bill, you're up. 
and our so he said on the way and fired before, fired four times at at this I couldn't see where the, what the target was he mm -hmm. could but uh, that was uh, that was it that uh, I guess they found parts of about three or four people whether they were good guys or bad I don't know and so over you know of course once you get where once you said you you they told you get out it's your time to go yeah so they brought you you, you flow you flew out of where at that point i flew we flew out of denang back to back to okinawa and so did you were you planning on ever going back into the field at that point or did you know that you were done? no i knew that my 13 months was up and that was that for you and yeah. then did they do any sort of uh um like, well they of course they train you for combat i mean do they have any sort of exit strategy for you guys at that point of here's how to go back to the civilian life from there how to get on it? Get on that fucking plane. You're going home. <laughs> was it? Was it easy for you to? Or, well, I suppose I want to back up. While I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, while you're over there, I know um, the yes, August. When when did you have a chance to see? Was it? Uh, is it the USO? USO tour where they bring entertainers, comedians, bands, whatever. Do you have a chance to go see anybody like that? I know Bob Hope was a big act in Vietnam, and I've seen video clips of it. Will be for my time, but did they give you an opportunity for that? I just I don't remember. I don't remember going to a USO show. I've seen. I don't think we ever saw one in person because I think they had guys from our uh, compound who were there. They had been loaded up into trucks and brought into Da Nang, but we were out in the field mm -hmm. when they, because we heard them ooing and eyeing about the... <laughs> But I, no, I don't think we ever we ever saw one. I'm still trying to. No, I don't. But uh, so once you're you're on your way, getting out of there, you're coming home. So you, so you flew out of Da Nang, and they brought you. Was it the Philippines? Did you say? No, back to Okinawa. Okinawa. Did you start your exit process from there, or did they fly you back to the States before they start, you know, the paperwork side of the house, if you will? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think before I left... This, this is a little bit vague, but, but uh, before I left the uh, 1st Tank Battalion, I, I say, say uh, at Da Nang, but it was outside of Da Nang. Right. 
uh, the big first marine the main area uh, base, but I think before I left, see when uh, first of all came in out of the field, they flew me into this. It was called Mag sixteen drop in a the helicopter into the compound and then picked my world, worldly belongings what was worth taking and uh, uh, came went back to my hooch or uh, the where we where we had left our other stuff grabbed my other sea bag and then uh, and then was the next day or something or th later that day they said well you got uh, about noon you'll be leaving for so um, about noon we left for uh, the Da Nang Air Base and then they flew then we sat there for must have been another 12 hours waiting for our press, sit on the edge of the tarmac, waiting for our flight to come in. Then they loaded us on C-130s, you know, those, uh, well, they're cargo plane. Mm -hmm. Not exactly flying first class at that point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, then we had, uh, flew, we, we flew to Okinawa along with a, Quite a bunch of these tin bodies, tin tin boxes. Didn't realize at the time they were they were uh, bodies of servicemen. And I didn't, you know, when you're on a C one thirty, and they got they're they were they're designed for paratroopers. They mm -hmm. they've got the static line in there. You just sing it. Holy Christ! I hope they don't have us jump out of them. <laughs> but no, no. That guy says, "What's in the boxes?" Went over there, and there's a uh, on one of them. There's a tag of some. He came back. He looked like he was what white as a sheet. He says, "Those are guys that didn't make it." So. And then we got uh, and got in the air with that C-130, and it was colder than hell. <laughs> no comfort, no comfortable ride there, but. From, and that was to Okinawa at that yeah, point? Yeah, to Okinawa. And that wasn't a very, uh, that's not a very long flight. Right. And did they fly you back to the States from there? Did yeah. You, were, were you in Okinawa for a while? About four days, I think, because you had to get your shots and your all this, you know, to that you don't get typhoid or jungle fever or whatever the heck they had back then, mm -hmm. malaria and all this stuff. So, were they, they, so I suppose you're still considered active duty at that point. I mean, were you still having to do day to day military stuff, or was it more? A relaxation R&R &R period for you. 
For when? When you're in Okinawa for those four days. Oh, be very honest. A couple nights, I was really drunk out. <laughs> what people in the military drink? No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that. You know they had. I don't even know. Don't even know what's in it nowadays. But they had this drink. And all these little gals, you know, the, a lot of them Japanese or Filipino. And just to see girls with short skirts <laughs> and, and all that stuff. I mean, it was, it was really, and yeah, without a doubt, we drank too much. <laughs> so... From Okinawa, did they fly you back to the States from there? Yeah, 13-hour flight. From, I think mm -hmm. we went to from Okinawa, then I think to Japan, and I think to, I don't know how this went, to Honolulu, mm -hmm. and then, then, uh, Yeah, then, then back to San Francisco because we landed or we had to go to dispensing at uh, San Francisco to get our money. So. So what's what's dispensing? Where they give you the money you've got coming. Sure. Like leave pay or airline tickets and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So you, you see, yeah, okay, I see. And from there, did they fly you back up this way, or were you out of the military at the time, or are you still? No, no, I had I had about uh, four four or five months to go, <coughs> and no, they they paid my airfare to <coughs> airfare to Minneapolis, and then uh, I went home. My mom and Dad came down with a friend of theirs and picked me up. Neither my mom or dad wanted to drive in the cities, so they <laughs> came down and picked me up and then took me home for 30 days. And then I went back to, uh, uh, yeah. Then after the leave was over, I reported to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina for they called it casual company. It was a company that they just didn't know what the hell they're going to do with you for <laughs> right. four months. So, yeah, it was, I think, September, October, November, and December. Yeah. So we went to, uh, there to uh, Camp Lejeune, and then I was uh, up told to, I was, you had uh, two choices that they gave you. Either go on mess duty, and I know mess duty had to get up at like 3 o'clock in the morning. Either uh, mess duty or go work in the base brig. So I chose the base brig was a, was my choice. It was a that was an interesting place to 
interesting place to work. It was no, no real what you'd call hard, hardcore criminals or anything, but uh, a lot of guys that had gone AWOL or something. We had a few guys that had gotten crazy and drunk and held up a liquor store or something like that. And so like that. Or, so after that, then uh, I worked there until, uh, yeah, I worked there until January, December 5th. And then the next shock came. They said, well, rather than holding you over and paying you holiday pay, anybody who uh, is to get out between now and now and, you know, like in the next month, let's say the month of December, we're giving you a, what, three or four week early out. So I was discharged and on my way home mm -hmm. December 5th. So, do, do they pay for your flight back home oh from yeah. Lejeune from there? Yeah. It, no, they... I got all the money I had coming. And uh, it was, uh, like I said, I, I never signed up for this stuff, but uh, it was a good experience, I guess. Then years later, you realize you did your country wanted wanted you to serve and you did and I got out honor uh, uh, had a honorable uh, discharge and yeah that's about it coming home what was it like for you I mean did your family throw any kind of reception for you or friends get together you know take you down to the bar or anything like that uh, not really. Well, neither one of my parents drank, or, or my dad did in his younger years, but he hadn't drank for years. But then the neighbors, neighbor people, our neighbors, they came over and said hi and stuff like that, had coffee or whatever. It was no, no big uh, whoop. I just basically, uh, days I was on leave, I kind of, uh, laid around the house and uh, didn't do a whole lot of anything. Did you? Was it difficult for you transitioning back into the civilian world? I mean, talking to the other guys, the the big thing is that what you're taught in the military doesn't always necessarily translate into a career job. Obviously, there's you know being in a tank crew. That's not necessarily something you're going to come across in no. The, on your average job site? No, but it it, it was nothing. Uh, can't can't blame the military for that either. I mean, it was a, you know, being a door gunner on a Huey doesn't translate into a job either. So, <laughs> but no. Uh, Uh, 
what what was the question now you if yeah did you did you find it difficult to trans transition back into the civilian world or lifestyle if you will uh not really there were moments i i remember one time we were in fact i was dating a girl somebody one of my friends had fixed fixed this up kind of and we were at her home just just uh to pick her up it was a nice really nice it was a nice sunny day and in the summer and really and uh here uh, some youngsters from next door had gotten a hold of uh some uh firecrackers and they i remember i had a pair of these white color or they got wheat colored jeans and they set off that string of firecrackers and i dove right behind right beside this girl's dad's pickup truck just 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 like not even thinking and tore my tore my goddamn pants <laughs> but the, he his her dad knew what had happened mm-hmm. and he went over them gave them kids holy hell but no i i i never you can't control how fast you can react when something like that goes off. If it's you're you're almost I guess uh, programmed for it at that yeah. point. Just the I'm, I'm, I can't think of the word I want to use right now, but yeah. I, but from there, I mean, did you ever get a chance to use the you know the GI Bill or anything like that? Yes, I did. And go off to college. What did you do? For what? What? What'd you use the GI Bill for? I went to college for two years, and uh, and I toward the end of it, and I in that process of that, I met John's mom and stuff, and uh, she's a very nice lady to this day, and we just didn't either were too young or whatever. It didn't kind of work out, but she gave me three good kids. We had a daughter that passed away would be between John and his younger brothers right in the middle there. And uh, But I never... I was doing okay in college. Mm-hmm. But I... He just had this kind of gnawing feeling, like, what the hell am I doing here? You ever felt that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, like I was saying earlier. You're sure you know. it's uh, not putting me in any uh, bankruptcy. I think the college credit hours were like 26 or $28 a credit hour then, not five hundred dollars right. an hour. <laughs> but I just really never 
never really found out what I wanted to, what I wanted to do. And uh, I don't know. But, and after that, I think we were married about eight years and uh, things just didn't work. What did you end up doing for a career after military and after college? You know, we're oh. I'm in the same boat. I went for five years and didn't finish. Yeah, I know. For similar reasons, you know, it's just. I drove truck for almost almost thirty eight years. And different different companies, mostly over the road and stuff like that. So it, it's been a. I don't know. I've had a good life. I have no, no real complaints and stuff. And but that's about it, I guess. I did. You ever have an opportunity to keep in touch with the guys that you served with, or from either from basic or the overseas, whatever the case may be? Not really. I had one guy, but he he died a few years back. So and. Last question I'll, I'll, I'll bug you about. Mm -hmm. uh, so, well, two questions, I suppose. One, if, if you had a magic wand and you had to go back and you could go back in time and do it all over again, would you stay with the Marine Corps and experience everything they experienced or would you try to change something or change something about yourself? Maybe that one morning, uh, instead of walking right, I would have gone left, whatever the case may be. Um. Yeah, I I would, I guess, knowing what I know now, I I don't think I, I don't think I would have changed changed anything. You know, it's uh, rather than rather than being really apprehensive and wanting to get out of it, you know, just face it head on and say, hey, okay, you know, maybe I go into Maybe I go into some other service if it was available because uh, there aren't all that many combat relate or uh, life relate like my son, my younger son is he was a pharmacy tech in the Navy for twenty years, and now he came out. He went to the University of Wisconsin, and now he's a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. So. If there's anything, uh, that's what it, you know, it might, but I'm not, I'm not at all uh, unhappy with the decisions I made. I mean, I could have been a little bit smarter about some of them, but, you know, I. And I think that's something that comes with, with life experience yeah. and hindsight is twenty twenty. And I've got, uh. Nothing against the government or what want to overthrow anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but for if there's anyone that's looking at going to the military, what advice would you offer up for them? I'd almost have to get back to that, that look at, find the best 
career opportunity, no matter what the service is, whether it be Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, that you believe that you like to be when you complete your military service, whether it be a, a pharmacist or a air traffic controller or whatever, that, uh, you know, think it through. Well, thank you. That's all the questions I have. If you yeah. have any parting thoughts you'd like to, to leave, you're more than welcome to. Yeah, no, I, I think I've said about all there is, and I thank you for the ability to say it. Yeah, I appreciate it, and thank you again, and thank you for for the service you did for us. You know, for drafted or enlisted, either way, it it's allowed me to have the life I have. I know I'm you're younger by a few years, but it it means a lot to me, and means a lot that you gave me the opportunity to talk to you. So thank you, sir. Yeah. I was just looking at this sign here. Mm -hmm. Round man 